up, witches, and welcome to Witch Space. I'm Gemini. And I'm Scorpio. And on today's episode, well, for once, because I know Gemini says, Scorpio decides, Scorpio decides, Scorpio decides. Scorpio decided squat. This is a Gemini joint today. And I guess we're going to talk about Oedipus and hubris. Yeah, and eventually we'll get around to death of the author and how all three of those things relate to each other. And how they all relate to Hellenismos, which I think is exciting because people have asked for it. People want you to speak more about your practice. So I, I'm all in. And of course, I know the story of Oedipus being an English teacher. For people who don't remember, I, would hope like, you do. I, I kinda I know if I don't know Oedipus, we have a problem. So long story short, right? I don't know. Do you want to tell the recap or you want me to just do it? Because I was just going to be real fast. Like, you do it. The guy, the guy killed his father and married his mother. But the whole point was his father was told in a prophecy that his son would kill him and marry his wife. So instead of listening to the gods and just saying, and I'll give my opinion on this whole thing later, but um, instead of just saying, okay, this is what's going to happen, the gods will it, blah, blah, blah. He was like, oh, not my kid. So they put these spikes through his ankles and they left them on the top of a mountain, I guess, for animals to to eat him that Am is I, fully a thing that they did yeah what do you mean it's fully like in, in actual did? ancient that is it's called exposure um if a baby was bad for whatever reason you stab it and you hang it up and you exposed the baby and that's why you have all of these stories in ancient griefs ancient griefs ancient <laughs> greece of like shepherds being like oh i couldn't i just couldn't do it the baby was so cute i couldn't do it i had to save his little life because they would literally yeah that's you murdered babies like that so I never knew that. Um, I'm today years old when I <laughs> found out that ancient Greeks actually did this stuff. So anyway, and Oedipus's parents took him up to a mountain, stabbed his legs, left him up there. And just like Gemini said, a shepherd found them and he and his wife were like, cute baby, we're going to take care of him. So Oedipus grows up. Oedipus hears the prophecy and he's like, oh, my God, I can't stay here. I'm going to kill my dad and marry my mom. So he leaves and he goes on a journey. And on this journey, um, there's this carriage with this king. And did he run over Oedipus's foot or something? Like, that's the part I remember now. He, they tell him to Move? get out of the way. Yeah, get out of the way. Important, important information. Oedipus um, not only is saved by the shepherd, but is given to, I think, the king of Corinth and is raised as a prince. Yeah. So he's walking down the street. And this guy in his carriage is like, get out of the way. And this man, Prince of Corinth, who has just left his kingdom of Corinth with his cool king dad because he doesn't want to kill his dad, is like, fuck you, dude. I'm not getting out of the way of your fucking carriage. Um, and then he kills a bunch of guys uh, because that's a normal thing that people do. But then he goes, continues on his journey. And there's this riddle because the town is is basically a video game. And... <laughs> That's what I'm so thinking true. of, right? He's like on a quest. Yeah. And now he has to solve Yeah, I have to fight the boss to get into the town. And the boss is a sphinx. Yeah. And he basically solves the riddle. And he goes in. And what's his prize? Oh, you get to marry the queen. And ooh, so he marries the queen. Who happens to be the widow of the guy he just killed when he killed all those people. And yes, you guessed it. He killed his dad and married his mom. And then he had a bunch of kids. And that can be picked up in Antigone. But that's the story of Oedipus. And of course, Oedipus doesn't realize that he has done this, but there's this blind prophet who knows and is like telling him, you know, if I was Tiresias, I would have gone on vacation. I would have been like, you know what? No one listens to me. 
Everyone wants yeah. to hear about Tiresias. And the minute Tiresias is in the room, people are like, yeah, nah. Then why'd you call for me? What him and Cassandra should have just been having like regular coffee dates. Yes. Just regular catch ups. Like, oh, who didn't listen to you this time? Oh, me? The entirety of Troy. You? Oh, a bunch of really famous heroes. So uh, Oedipus eventually realizes it's true. To make a long story short, uh, his mother wife realizes, this is like sister wives, mother wife realizes what's happened. Um, she hangs herself. He finds his mother wife, takes a brooch from her, pokes out his eyes because, you know, he was metaphorically blind. Now he is literally blind and he will wander the earth blind to what he has done. That is the story of Oedipus. And it's a lot of fun to teach because kids are like, what the fuck, miss? Like, what yes. is going on? But it tells us a lot about the Greeks. And it tells us, even for somebody who's not Hellenic, I feel like it tells us a lot about religion, right? What a great segue, Scorpio, into me becoming manic for probably 30 full minutes. <laughs> okay, so let's... We've got the context on Oedipus the Play. Oedipus the Play is written by Sophocles, um, one of the famous Athenian playwrights who was writing in a time where, like, there were regularly, they're putting on plays as part of, like, festivals and events. So people are, like, regularly going to see plays. This is part of the culture. Um, I obviously am Hellenic, right? One of the things that I we've talked about off the podcast, and I think I've mentioned a little bit on the podcast, is like I always feel very hesitant to talk about Hellenismos because I don't want people to think that I'm an expert. Um, I don't want to be like, oh, well, Gemini said. And so like that's how Hellenismos works. And yet I look back at some of the conversations that I've had with people, and I do sometimes still sort of talk like an expert. Um <laughs> I'm still, you know, I always try to be like, oh, this is my Hellenismos. But like, well, this is how my Hellenismos does it. Um, and so I have posted on Instagram, I was listening to this lecture series called Famous Greeks. I don't remember the name of the guy who does the lecture, but he is a historian and a professor somewhere or other. And he was talking about how learning about Greek history and Greek religion is very powerfully done through studying famous people. Um, because they are kind of like context for their time and the way that people sort of interacted with each other. And this was great. I'm learning about like Troy and, you know, how this was actually probably true. And we were able to find ruins of Troy and then coming in historically from that. And where did that develop and what did that lead to? And finally, as we go through into Greek, not finally, there's more of the lecture. But the point that I need to get to is we get to Pericles. And People have heard of Pericles most of the time. Like, he's generally mentioned in, like, if you do an ancient history thing, when you learn about Athens, Pericles is mentioned. Famous orator, famous sort of, like, leader of Athens, of Athenian democracy. Generally considered a good guy. Um, the guy who did the lecture compared him to, like, Lincoln and Winston Churchill. Right? So, like, generally considered important guys. Good guys. They did good things, Right? quote-unquote ending slavery, and quote-unquote ending World War II. Good guys. A lot of air quotes happening in this conversation. But when you talk about Pericles, and you look at him in the context of his history, he is also the man who powerfully orated Athens into 
a war for empire, right? For trying to basically conquer all of Greece, destroy Sparta, and become like the Persian Empire that they had fought all those years ago um, with Sparta in, like, if you've seen 300 and that sort of stuff. He tells the story of, like, them ordering the just decimation of a nearby island, just killing all the men, selling all the women and children into slavery, and how Pericles uses that to say, like, well, Sparta's going to do that to us, so we have to fight a war with Sparta. We have to fight a war. Just pushing and pushing for everybody to fight a war with Sparta. And Sparta doesn't want to fight this war. Sparta keeps sending negotiators, being like, no. Like, let's let's make a truce. Let's make a deal. We don't want to do this. We don't want to have to have our league and your league kick each other's ass. I want to say this is the Peloponnesian Wars. I don't remember the name of wars is what I'm realizing right now. But I think it's the Peloponnesian War. So Sparta is saying over and over and over, we don't want to do this, we don't want to do this. They send a final letter. And in this final letter, they say, when you remove the pollution, that is Pericles, we can come to an agreement. And this was, first of all, very powerful because in ancient Greek religion, you have this idea of miasma, which is sort of like spiritual pollution that you can just accumulate over time. Um, you have to, like, ritually wash it off. It's sort of like how in the past they would say, like, oh, if you're on your period, you're, like, dirty, quote-unquote, things like that. So they're literally saying in this negotiation, Pericles is the problem. He is the pollution, the miasma in your city. He is the one that has led you to this. If you get rid of him, you will not have to go to war. You will, all your men will not die. None of these things will happen. And then this motherfucker, this lecture... <laughs> drops the bomb that Sophocles and Pericles live at the same time in the same Athenian democracy, and Sophocles is writing not just plays about Greek religion, but specifically satires about Pericles. And this blew my fucking top. Absolutely upended me. And I'm sure that everyone is like, Gemini, what? Are you, what are you, why? So let's go back to Oedipus for a minute. You mentioned that when you teach Oedipus, kids are like, what the fuck? And like, yeah, I was also like, what the fuck? And no shade to like my English teacher, because I'm sure that he did a great job, but it, it didn't stick with me. Why the fuck? Just what the fuck? Right? So when you read about Oedipus, you're, you, it, there's this inevitability that you feel in the story, like no matter what happens, it's going to end badly. It's inevitable. And it's very easy to fall into this idea that it is a, f that it's fate's problem, right? That hubris, which is, you know, the, this, um, this arrogance, right? That Oedipus is said to have feels inevitable in the story of Oedipus. It feels like the hubris is that he exists, um, and I think if you don't, if you don't teach it very specifically, you just get stuck with that, like, what the fuck? Like, there was no way out of this for him. He was on this path for life. And it wasn't until hearing this story about Pericles, who is, for all intents and purposes, taught as this amazing orator, this powerful Athenian democrat, hearing, like, the bad parts of him, and then hearing Sophocles being alive at the same time and writing Oedipus, satire of Pericles, Antigone, probably a satire of Pericles, the third Oedipus, which I didn't know was a third one, and I don't know if anybody else knows there's a third one, um, also probably about Pericles. To know the context 
you're able to look at that story and sort of step back from the what the fuck. Take a look at the hubris and say, oh, okay, why the fuck? Why the fuck? Because, and you even mentioned it in telling the story, like, his father decides, I'm going to expose this baby. I have been told this is a prophecy, and my response is, fuck that. I'm going to change the narrative. And you can't, you can't change the narrative. And so this story, this conglomeration, all of these things happening to me made me understand hubris in a way that I never understood it before. Because for me, it was very much like, oh, well, hubris is fighting against fate. Things are inevitable and you can't change them and it's fighting against fate. But it's not. It's that every single person is subject to the whims of reality and you cannot treat the world like you know better than the world. You are not smarter than reality. And when you look at it in terms of like, oh, here's the the satire. Okay, Pericles thought he was hot shit. He thought he could talk his way into running a what is, you know, for them a global empire. He thought he could chat his way into being the most important person. You know, there's theories that he started the whole war because he wanted to like hide money dealings that he was doing and like cannot confirm or deny, but there was a power to Pericles' voice that he used, which then ended up in, you know, the Athenians suffering a major plague that decimated the city. The Athenians entering into a war that they, they lose and lose badly. And only by the good grace of Sparta are they not fully wiped off the map. Pericles' ego is the pollution And that is not inevitable in the way that Oedipus sometimes feels inevitable without that context. And, like, for me, knowing that also, I told you guys I was going to be manic for, like, 30 minutes. Knowing that also makes me step back from the way I practice Hellenismos. Because I, I said to you when I was pitching this episode, I texted Scorpio and I was like, I need to talk about this. Can we put this in the freaking, I'm like, fake texting you can't see it can we put this in the schedule i'm i'm explaining it to you i'm like this was if i had known this at like 14 i think i might have been a different person but but that's the point right that's that's the growth i a lot of what i do is about being correct right this is like a large part of my personality is about being right all the time and The story of Oedipus is about looking that in the face and saying, sometimes you can't be right. Sometimes reality is real. And if you don't like it, that changes nothing. And so I guess like part of it is I want to come on here and be like, hey guys, Hellenismos is important to me and I didn't ever want to say something about it that would be wrong. But no matter what I do, I'm going to be wrong. Because I am only one person practicing one version of one religious faith. And, like, at some point I just have to own that and be like, this is what I do. Fuck it. <laughs> because it is hubristic. It, it is hubris for me to be like, well, I'm not going to do it ever. I'm not going to tell you because I can't be wrong about it. Like, the reality is I am wrong. And I'm doing wrong things. And it doesn't change it if you know about it. Wow. <laughs> I have so many thoughts right now. It was a right lot. Now. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. Okay. First of all. <laughs> Tell me that. Them. 
I think that's awesome that you like have come to this because I think that's a problem that a lot of us have no matter which path we take. Right? It's this idea of how can I speak for every single Hellenic? How can I speak for every single Wiccan? How can I speak for every... You can't. I think that that's the beauty of listening to different people is that we get to hear or how that religion or that practice is filtered through that one particular person. And that's all. When it comes back to Oedipus, first of all, mm-hmm. and this is what I love about teaching, kind of like when you, you you start with the Greeks and kind of move up in a year, um, which depending on which grade you're teaching, you're not doing that. But what was mm-hmm. nice about it was you're starting with a bunch of people that were writing. It was propaganda, period. Okay. The whole point of writing, the whole point of art for some Greeks, right? There were two different schools of thought. One was, hey, this could be fun. But the original school of thought was, we are writing to make good Greek citizens. This is what you need to do to be a good Greek. So if that's what you're writing for, everything this author is writing is propaganda set up by whoever is, right? And they're going to be a a contributing voice to what's happening. I feel that, yes, and the Greeks did believe that fate controlled your whole life. But here's the thing. The gods had whims, okay? And I feel that if Oedipus's dad had accepted his quote-unquote fate, his, his son would not have grown up to marry him and to kill him and marry his mother, <laughs> to marry him. <laughs> That's a different play. That's a different play altogether. No, but that wouldn't have happened. And if Oedipus yeah. had said, oh, shit, this is what this is what the gods want for me, then I don't think he, he should have like gone out and killed his father on purpose, his stepfather, because he didn't know that wasn't his father. Yeah. Um, think about it. If you know something and you know the gods will it, then wouldn't you just accept it as a good Greek citizen, right? If this is your faith, then you accept it only to realize it's not, it's not human nature to kill your father to marry your mother. Like that doesn't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And nobody thought about it. And nobody thought about it because you weren't supposed to. You're supposed to follow your fate. I really don't think the gods would have had Oedipus kill his dad and marry his mom. I think that was the whole point. You were being tested in Greek tragedies over and over again. You're tested in. Um, oh, my God. I just lost his name. Odysseus. Odysseus's oh, travel. So much. Aside from being so filled much. with, you know, PTSD and drug use and yeah um like weird consent issues yeah um but it, it it is again it's a lot of hubris and it's all about accepting it when he starts to realize the that he is not everything right that he does yeah. ha- oh shit all of a sudden you're home all of a sudden mm-hmm. you can beat all of your wife's suitors all of a sudden you're the man again because you're not the man you are nothing And that's something that I think that the Greeks really wanted people to know. You are nothing, right? You are just another human being living in the world, and the world is going to exist around you no matter what. Right. The gods are going to do what the gods do, and they are gods. And you can... And if we think about them even in terms of, like, a metaphor, right? The ocean is not going to stop storming and and wrecking ships and having weird crazy ugly creatures in it just because you're a cool guy right Right? like you could be oh you're sick you you figured out the trojan horse you're the smartest man the ocean's still gonna fuck you up right 
And as much as Shakespeare then changes tragedies, and we mostly when we think of tragedies, we think of Shakespeare, and then of course there are modern tragedies. Um, you still have half of the problem with these people in tragedies is their hubris. Yeah. And is that even about the gods anymore at this point? Because there is no, and God's going to punish you in, in Shakespeare. But so many of these people are just fucked because they, you know, they're so... They thought they were smarter. They thought they were smarter or they were so wrapped up in being the best mm-hmm. that they didn't realize all this other stuff that was happening. Like, you know, it's always their fault. And that that's a big shift, that it's their fault versus... You know, you didn't do something for the gods, but... Um... But even then, it's still... It's it's Oedipus's fault. Right? And even, like, yes. the play... So, I'm gonna go... I'm gonna dive in a little bit deeper, because in the play, you get basically this messenger that's, like, Thebes, Thebes is a stand-in for Athens in the story. Thebes is... Oh, they're sick. Everybody's sick. There's a plague. Something's going on. And the messenger goes to Delphi, and the oracle says, you have to get rid of the pollution. You have to get rid of the pollution. The same words that the Spartans said. And they go and they find Tiresias and they're like, what's the pollution? What happened? Oh, well, you didn't take care of the guy who killed the last king. Those rights weren't handled, right? So you are suffering now. Oh, oh, who is it? Tiresias, who is it? I can't tell you. I don't want to tell you. You're going to be mad. No, Tiresias, tell me. Well, Oedipus, it was you. And Oedipus is like, can't be me. You and Creon are trying to steal my throne. Can't be me. Oedipus could have just been like, ah, fuck. Okay, I'm going to do the rights. Yeah. I'm going to do the rights. I'm going to follow the procedure. If we want to talk about Antigone, right? Creon is like, I'm going to punish these motherfuckers. I'm going to let their bodies rot. No no funeral rights for them. Antigone's like, you have to let me bury them. It's for the gods. Nah, fuck them. I'm going to punish them. Okay, well, you thought you were hot shit. And the gods are pissed that you didn't follow the very normal and appropriate rights. You didn't do the right thing because you thought you were hot shit. And now you're in trouble. Now you're in trouble. And it is when you believe you are better than reality. Yeah. Right? I'm too good to do funeral rites. I'm too good to do the rites after I kill somebody to clear the pollution. I don't need that. I am Pericles. I can create an empire for Athens. I personally can facilitate a changing of the world. And, like, that's, that's too much. One person does not change the world. Right? Athenian democracy changed the world, but that was people. That was a society. It wasn't just Pericles. It, it isn't just Oedipus. You can't just, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm the king. I'm the greatest king. I'm making Thebes amazing. I solved the riddle. I'm perfect. No. There are other people, other things. Reality exists around you, and you have to accept that. <laughs> so how do we bring this back to I mean you mentioned one thing about your practice is there anything else that I think it's a space first of all of like giving myself a little bit more grace to be wrong um because I I I will admit this very openly like I think it holds me back from doing more because I'm so afraid of being wrong all the time that it's like oh I don't want to I don't want to practice this because I don't know if I'm gonna fuck it up like fuck it up girl fuck it up and what the gods aren't going to smite me because I'm trying to honor them. Right. You know, like, they, you, you can't get in trouble for trying to do the right thing. It's when you don't do it that it's the problem. When you willingly um, know also, what the right thing is and choose and to you go ignore the other it, way. Yeah. 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 But I think it also, like, it leaves room for me to be more open, I guess, to, like, just be like, hey, this is actually what I do. 
this is actually, you know, how my practice has evolved because I think I think I have held back a lot from being like, this is my Hellenismos because I it's very important to me and I'm also very afraid of being wrong all the time. So if we could just get rid of the wrong thing, stop worrying about what's right and wrong, like correctness wise and start worrying about what's right and wrong for me in my practice, then yeah, it leaves me room to then be able to say, hey guys, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing right now. I wasn't doing it 10 years ago and I might not be doing it in 10 years, but this is what I'm doing right now. You know, we say on the podcast so many times, read the myths, right? Go back yeah. and, and find out from the stories, you know, what you can. And I think this is a great example of reading the myths and not just making connections to what people thought back then, but how you can apply that to your life right now. Yeah. Right. That's the whole purpose of reading the myths. You know, what can you get out of this? And yeah, I think that um, that whole line of Oedipus stories is just, yeah. Chill the fuck out. You're not that cool. <laughs> like that's, it's literally sit down. You're not that cool. And do the right thing. And by right thing, I don't mean yeah. be correct. It means, you know, right? If somebody is telling you and you choose, you willfully choose, I'm going to do something yeah. else because of me, because of my hubris, not because, you know, they say you have to go to this river and do something. Yeah, but there was just a chemical spill. Like, I, I can't. Yeah. Like, the water's polluted. That's very different from, I don't need to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. Um, no, you were kind of told you have to do this. So what makes you think you know more than the gods? If you are going to be, and I'm going to stretch this, if you're going to be pagan, right? If or ah, fuck it, if you're going to be religious, because okay, God, Let's Christian do it. God has a book too. If you're going to be religious, <laughs> you have to take it. You kind of have to take it at, like not at face value, but like at face value. If if your gods have rules, follow the rules. You probably should be following them. <laughs> Right? Like, and I'm not saying that there's not room for, like, interpretation or growth. And, like, I I try to be very honest about being, like, revivalist more than reconstructionist because there's some stuff that I'm, like, I can't do and I won't do. Right. But if there are, like, really important rules, you should be probably following those rules. Otherwise, why are you worshiping those gods? Okay. So now I'm going to I'm gonna add something to that, though. Yes, follow the rules if we're talking about the mythology of a people, right? A mythology of a God, a mythology of a religion. Mm -hmm. But the only, I think it's the only organized religion that's recognized is Wicca. Yes. And I feel like we're always saying death to Wicca in a sense. Like, you know, it's time for the well, old guard to go. It's time for those rules to change. I don't think that that's, because I don't think that's what we're saying. I think I want the old guard to go socially. Like, I don't give a fuck if Wicca is Wicca for the rest of forever. Yeah. Wicca can practice and, and Wicca should practice and follow their rules. But, like, don't then come into society and be like, well, you have to do this. I mean, I'm not Wiccan. I'm not Wiccan. You're not in charge of me. See, I'm going to take it a step further and say Wiccans aren't in charge of me. Like, as yeah. as, as a witch. So and I'm not even saying, it's, okay, traditional witch, you, you wouldn't follow Wicca. But I think even as Wiccans, what made the author what made gerald gardner pope right what makes yeah. doreen valiente pope what makes these people the pope they're not these are people that studied ceremonial magic that studied eastern philosophies that studied old mythology and said you know what i'm going to put a little bit here 
right? They went yeah. to a all-you-can-eat buffet, and they just filled their plate. <laughs> a little bit of this, a little bit yeah. of that, a little bit of that. Yeah. And then they looked at the plate and said, let's rearrange it. Let's move it around. And here's Make Wicca. it a five-pointed star. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. why can't we go to the buffet ourselves and go, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and, you know, make it ourselves? Okay. This is a beautiful segue. Okay. Because I want to talk also about Death of the Author. Okay. So, so just for context for everybody, Death of the Author is this, like, philosophical no, idea. No, You want to do it? You, you do it. do it. You do it. I'm the English teacher. You do it. You're right. I'm shutting up. You God. do it. God. She's going to, like, Scorpio's step all over it. my freaking... Sorry. I'm so sorry. So schools of literary criticism... I'm going to sip my iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> schools of literary criticism are basically just lenses that we look at literature through. And in 1967, this French literary critic and theorist... Um, oh my God, what the heck is this stupid guy's name? Roland, Roland, did you take French? Yeah, I speak French un petit peu. Barthes? Barthes? Barthes. That's his name? Roland Barthes. Yes. So that guy, I did not take French. Um, <laughs> I tried. Even though he was a literary critic and he was a theorist he argued in this essay in 1967 called i think it was called the death of the author but that's where the idea like kind of came from this idea of against traditional literary critics right um that he doesn't believe that we should rely on the biography or the religion or the politics of an author to get to determining the interpretation of the piece that's what Death of the author is. Now, go on, because I have my own thoughts about this roll-on. Okay, so. I want to talk, I need to change lanes and talk about a different Greek play. Okay. Lysistrata. Okay, you know, I don't know that one. Oh, well. I'm so fucking... <sighs> okay, we're good. I, I, mm. Okay, for those of you who don't know, do know Lysistrata, um... You're about to get your minds blown, too. But Lysistrata is a play, I want to say it's by Aristophanes, Aristophanes. I don't remember exactly. It might be Xenophane. I'm just saying these names. The worst. I'm so sorry. Um, Lysistrata is a play where all of the women of Greece get together and decide they're not going to have any sex until the war is over. Oh, I do know the story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they made it into a movie about Chicago. They called it Chirac, I believe, mm-hmm. where all the women in the gang, the gang wives and gang girlfriends weren't going to fuck anybody until the gang war was over. Um, it is generally referred to as a piece of pacifist literature because it's like, oh, well, we're trying to stop the war. The context blew my fucking mind because these things are written, as you said, propaganda. The Greeks were writing to try to demonstrate how to be a good citizen. Okay. In, if, in Athens... Um, they were not great to women to the point where women were so secluded that they had their own dialect of Athenian. They spoke a slightly different version of the language Damn. than men. So when this play is being written, this is not a comedy about, haha, isn't it great when we just all come together? If we don't have sex, then we can end the war. We're so powerful as women. This is a story about how stupid women are. Look at these stupid fucking women who just ended this war. We get no glory. We're all drunk and and debaucherous. And we're terrible and we're not taking care of things. Because we listened to the stupid fucking women. It's not a piece of pacifist literature. It is a piece of, it's a play written so that young Athenian men can look and laugh. And say, ha ha ha, this is why we don't listen to women. They don't understand they don't understand glory. They just want to have sex and get drunk. 
And if we don't put that in the context of the time, you read Lysistrata and you go, wow, this is a feminist story. This is about how powerful women are. And the only power they had back in the day was sex, and they didn't use it, and they stopped a war. Wait, so what, what does that have to do with death of the author? Because I, there's two fully different stories, right? Oh, if you don't if look you, at the time that the author okay. is in, you don't look at when he was writing, who he was writing to, you think this is a great tale. Got it. But the minute you go, ooh, hey, Athens was really fucked up. This is not about that. Then you realize, oh, this story is not, this, this isn't a good story. This isn't a, um, an aspirational piece. This is a comedy written to make fun of women and honor the male ideal of, like, being a war hero. You know, there are a lot of different schools, and I feel like most of them, right, even if you're like, well, I'm, I'm going to look at, you know, gender theory, and I'm not going to be looking at this from a historic, biographic point of view, right? You still are. You're still looking yeah. at the time period. You, you really can't extract them because it's saying something, right? Authors write, I mean, even something like Stephen King. There are things that he wrote in the 70s that you look at now and you're like, dude, can you really? Mm -hmm. And Rice, actually, this is a better example. For anybody who's seen Interview with a Vampire, it's on AMC now. And they've done a beautiful remake, right? When she wrote, I want to say Into the Vampire came out in 78 or 79, something like that. There was a very different mindset. She wrote about things that happened in the South. We're not going to pretend they didn't have slaves. But it was told mm -hmm. from the slave owner's perspective, right? Louis was somebody who owned all these different people, mm -hmm. enslaved people. Now we have AMC's version and Louis is the generations a little bit after, right? Mm -hmm. What's it like to grow up in the South and be, you know, a descendant of enslaved people? What is it like for this man? We're seeing his world. It's going to be different. And we're also getting to see more of Louisiana, New Orleans culture, because it's no longer mm -hmm. whatever year it was. Now it's 1910 or something like that. Well, you know, we're fast forwarding. So we get to see how people act. You know, some people were very upset. Why can't it stay like the original? It is. It's the same story. They're not changing the story. What Anna Rice was trying to do is there. Mm -hmm. What we're getting now as an interpretation from a view now of the world that is not so narrow. And yeah. so to say, well, you know, we never want to look at the time period or the religion. Oh, my God, when it comes to Anne Rice, if you don't look at the religion, she was such a Catholic. It really bleeds through in a lot of the things that she's saying. If you read Interview, and I know and I've gone off to, to not religious texts, but Interview with a Vampire. Yes, though. Is about her, her fight with alcoholism. She lost her child. I think her daughter was five years old. She died of, uh, I, I don't know what it was, but it was a, a rare disease. And she couldn't stop drinking. Like, and eventually when she tried to like write about it, she couldn't. So it came out as a story about these people who had a thirst, right? And eventually there is a little girl who was made into a vampire. It was her way of letting go of her daughter. She talked about it afterwards. You read this book knowing that about her and you will cry during certain parts because you will see mm -hmm. the pain of this woman, both about her life spiraling and second about 
you know, the one being in her life and she couldn't protect them because this horrible thing was going to come for them. Um, to the point where she had a son and her son said in an interview, he didn't know he had a sister. So he went to school and somebody mentioned it. Like she couldn't oh, wow. mm -hmm. like really talk about it. So can you read into the vampire and just go, well, this was a cute story about some vampires. Yeah, you could. Could you read Oedipus and just go, oh, those crazy Greeks. Look at what they did. Yeah, yeah you could. But I think you're missing. I think you're missing large parts of the hopes, the dreams, the pains, the fears that society has. And yeah, their morals and their ethics and their religious biases are all going to be in there. Dracula is filled with it. I mean, Bram Stoker... Vampires have a lot of, like, religious shit going on. Oh, they on. have so much. It's so funny. It wasn't until Bram Stoker that we actually put Catholicism in. He, vampires aren't afraid of crosses or holy water. Mm -hmm. They're older than that, you know? But you have this good Irish Catholic boy, and now all of a sudden... We love a good Irish Catholic boy. You know, Victorian society, you know, these women want rights. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Rights? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we got to let people know. You give them rights, then they're going to, I don't know, kill children and want to have sex all the time. Like, it's... Because when you write about women who want to have sex all the time, it's because they're stupid. <laughs> and I don't know why people read Lysistrata and go, I don't... I'm talking shit. I'm talking shit. This is hubris. Because I heard the story of Lysistrata and I was like, damn, that's some feminist literature. It's not. It's a trap. But that's the thing. And like, when you talk about Wicca... If you know the context of Gerald Gardner and Doreen Valiente, I think it leaves you a lot more room to be like, I'm going to fuck around a little bit. Right. I'm not going to hold this to a pedestal because Gardner didn't hold it to a pedestal. Right. And that, I don't think and that's so, necessarily... Go ahead. No, no, you. I was going to say, I don't think that's necessarily like death of the author because I think what we're trying to say is read the older texts the way they were intended to be understood back then. What was going on back then? What was the propaganda? Yes. What did Gardner really want to do with this? Oh, yeah. So then actually, I would like to say out loud, the reason that I put death of... I, again, pitched this as Oedipus hubris and death of the author. The reason I wanted to say death of the author on here is because I think it's bad and dumb. I think it's bad and okay. dumb. I don't think you should do it, especially not in the context of what we do, which is witchcraft, theory, and practice, and history. Yeah. I think if you try to take these books and, and we've said, you know, take the books and take what works, but like take what works means take a look at why the other stuff doesn't, right? Like the looking at the history, doing the bios at the beginning, understanding where these texts come from is so fucking important for you as a person practicing a religion, right? Like this religion is so important to people, which is why we have the joke, like don't talk about politics or religion at the table. It's, if it's so important, if we're practicing a religion, yeah, you need to know. You need to know where it came from. Unless it's Catholicism. You can't just practice in a vacuum. It's Catholicism, you just well, listen. You just, yeah, you just, but they, you know, Christians say all the time, read the Bible. Yeah. That's technically a historical document. It is, like, actually legitimately a semi-historical document. There was, there, Jesus was a real guy. He was a prominent rabbi. We don't know, like... It's also a fictional memoir, but it's like, it's a history, especially the Old Testament. There's a lot of historical shit in there. There are actual historical documents. You read the Bible and there's like at least 50% history that you're getting. It's basically historical fiction. Yes, that's a good way to just, mm -hmm, that's the words. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the Bible is. It's historical fiction. And 
yeah, you can scrutinize anything. You have to think about the time period people were writing in. Doesn't make the authors evil people. This is what they believe. This is what a lot of people believed back to whenever they were writing the stuff. And Christians do this all the time with the, well, I don't have to follow the Old Testament because it was written, you know, Jewish people didn't eat pork because it was dangerous for them back then. So they made a rule so that they, so you're already doing it. You're already doing it. So we should be doing it too. If the Christians are doing it, we need to be doing it. They can't be beating us. I don't think they're beating us by any imagination. <laughs> but fair. But yeah, I think, God, you know, I'm really enjoying this. I'm really hoping people can, because I think we've clarified, because we've said it so many times, right? Like, read But this, this was, stuff, this was this very is, much like an epiphany. Yeah. yeah this was really I good. had a moment where I sat down and I was like, oh, fuck. So many things make sense now. And again, I wish I had known this when I was 14, but we grow and we change as we age. And that's a beautiful process. And it's fine. I'm fine. I'm totally not talking about it in therapy. It's fine. <laughs> um, but it is like, I think, I think also like the death of the author as a literary criticism, at least in the context of like religious practice is hubris. It is saying, I am better than that. I don't have to look at anything else. I get to make the decision. And that's all that matters. And I think that that's sort of what, like, something that comes into play when we talk about cultural appropriation. Because that is, cultural appropriation, cultural appropriation is death of the author to a religious practice. It is looking at a religious practice and going, fuck the context, it's mine now. Huge chef's kiss to that. <laughs> that was brilliant. You're right. That's exactly what appropriation is. Damn. And like, if 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 we're not gonna okay, if cultural appropriation is bad, which it is, if taking things out of their context and making it your own is bad, which it is, then death of the author is also bad. Because the whole point, at least in the context of religious practice. Well, yeah, because the whole point of death of the author is just look at the words that are there. And I go, yes. And they were chosen by a person because you could say something a myriad of different ways. Why do you choose yeah. to write this this way? Because of who you are, because of where you were living, because of what you believed. You can't ex extract that. So death of the author feels like step one. Right? Like, oh, okay, we're going to look and we're going to notice in the book that, like, he mentions that there's a lot of, like, blue curtains. There's, there's, there's a theme of blue curtains and standing behind and looking out. I'm making this shit up because people always talk about blue curtains. They do. Or blue doors. You know? Yeah. Right. Um, okay, step one is there's, there's something important about blue curtains. Well, now let's look deeper. Let's keep going. You don't just look at it and go, oh, well, there's blue curtains. Those are important. Maybe the blue curtains represent something. And people on the internet always get mad about like, well, why can't the blue curtains just be blue curtains? Because fucking he chose, he chose the image. He, she, the author. The person chose the image. The image clearly was important. Why was the image important? Asking why is a good thing? As long as you are like, asking why in the context of the reality you're ignoring it's hubris you're ignoring the reality if you just go oh well the curtains were blue and you move on so i just want to add to this in case anybody out there is thinking this i'm gonna say it so many years ago i have a friend who is a published poet published several books in fact i think another one was just released this summer or it's going to be released in the fall anyway 
um, I asked her to come and do like a workshop for my writer's club mm-hmm. at school. And of she did. Now, before she got there, I had them read some of her poems, which they ate up. Like, they were like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And of course, they went in with all their beautiful, you know, I think this is saying this and this is saying that. Mm-hmm. And she comes in and they told her all of it. And she was like, this is amazing. I can't believe you guys, like, you went in like this. She told me afterwards, I didn't even know half that stuff was in there. Like, it was not intentional, right? So I looked at her and I went, do you mean to tell me they read it wrong? She said, no. She said, I'm looking at it now from what they said. And I'm like, yeah, it's possible it got in there. So sometimes it's not even conscious, Mm -hmm. right? The author is having their beautiful, creative moments they're being inspired their muse is there but it's filled it's being filtered through something you know and i'm gonna take this back to anne rice for a minute oh yes please because the time period that anne rice is starting to write her books she chooses to write about a person who is a slave owner right who has who has enslaved other people which is fucked up but it also says a lot about who white people related to most Mm-hmm. in 1970 whatever mm-hmm. right and that's not i'm not saying Anne rice is a bad person for that i'm saying society has set her up to look at that narrative and go i'm gonna write about the white guy i relate more to the white guy in late 90s early 2000s i go to new orleans and um did a tour a plantation tour and they're talking about the house and the woman turns out the window i'm not going to say which plantation this is though looks out the window and she goes, and that's where the um, enslaved people, the, the quarters would have been. Now, if you turn around over here, and I was like, wait, wait. I thought, no, 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 we're going to come back to it. She's probably going to take we're, this we out have there, to. right? Yeah. And then when she goes at the end, well, this concludes, and I went, so I raised my hand. I said, is there a separate tour to learn more about the lives of the people? And she was like, what? I said, well, there were eight people who lived here, but you showed us everything and they didn't do squat. So I'd like to know mm-hmm. about the people, the journey of the people. Who did everything. Yeah, who did everything. Yeah. Like what happened, you know, did the last owners do so willingly to, you know, I want to know more about the people. And she came up to me, she goes, you know, we really don't like to discuss that. And I said, well, worse than discussing it, it was worse what happened to the people. They had to live it. <laughs> I said, and this is history. Yeah, like, honestly. I said, I came here to learn history. Like, and I did yeah. learn some, but more than half is cut off because the majority of people here, you're not talking about. And my husband was like, let it go. Let it go. I was like, okay, I'll let it go. But it was really upsetting to me because I'm like, people mm-hmm. lived and died enslaved. And we're going to talk about, oh, they got the inspiration for this wall from, yeah, I, Granted, that's part of the history, but I want to know about these people. Well, times have changed. So they went from, you know, early 2000s, I don't want to talk about it, to, from what I understand, that plantation now has redone the enslaved quarters to match what it was. And that is part of the tour now. And now all the other museums. In fact, the first time I ever went up here in the Lower Hudson Valley, there is Phillipsburg Manor that also had. Mm -hmm. The first time I did a tour there... They never spoke about the enslaved people. Guess what? I thought I'm in New York. Maybe they didn't have them, which was stupid when you see the size of this place, yeah. right? 
I go back when I get married to my husband now and I'm like, oh, you know where you should go? Because I want him to see history. Everything. Right? Yes. So experience the United States of America. Yeah. So we go there. Guess what? There is a list now mm -hmm. of the people that were enslaved and what their duties were, how they came here, um, how they finally got their freedom. I was like, this is a different tour. I said to my husband, this is not the tour that I was on. I love that they're doing that. So, you know, the history is there. Some shit. Oh, say some shit. Go. I don't even know how America I got on this. America, death of the authored. Anne Rice is how we got on this. But America, oh, yeah. death of the authored its own history. To say, so, like, I'm thinking about, like, Florida, right? Ugh. About how, like, oh, you can't teach X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Okay, that's, we, we definitely authored it. We're, we, they have removed all of the context of, like, AP African-American history and are just like, oh, well, we don't want you to, like, that's unfair to only teach about one culture because they're fully ignoring the fact that teaching about that one culture is actually teaching about American history, is actually teaching about all of these other things. Yeah. America... Oh, God, we're, like, literally founded on hubris. That's a whole separate problem. Oh, I can't actually go there hubris. today. I, that's, like, <laughs> you're, I, I know it's right, but it's also, like, a lot. I mean, you know, so many years you hear, I mean, like, the Hallmark version, like, on TV. Oh, the pilgrims came because they needed, they, went from, they were fleeing religious persecution. I was in a pilgrim play no, in elementary school. They were not leaving persecution. Well, they were because they were extremists. The people who came They were zealots. Here, that's why they came, because nobody wanted them, because they were bananas. So, yes, this country was founded on hubris, you know. Yeah. We really shouldn't be surprised that we are where we are right now in the U.S., okay? But that's a different story. But, yeah, I wanted to just say that about the plantation because of Anne Rice. Yes. So she wrote yeah. years before then. So just to get an idea, like you said, this is, it was okay to just look at it from that perspective, Right. That was that was the society she lived in. Like, of course, that made sense to her. Right. So, yeah. So if anybody is interested in vampires, seriously, read Interview with a Vampire because it's brilliant. And then watch the AMC. I'm sure the next season is coming out. But what they've done mm -hmm. is just such it's, it's so beautiful. And I feel like the writers really took the time because a lot of the things I got very fascinated with New Orleans. So I bought a lot of books on New Orleans and history. Yeah. So they mention a lot of things where I'm like, oh my God, yes. Like I know about this neighborhood or I know about that. So it's, um, it's cool. So yeah, hubris, death of the author, religion. It's all, uh, it worked. It worked. This was a good. Cause it was fully me just losing my shit. The whole previous, like all before the actual episode, or just me being like, I need to do this. We need to talk about this. This is the context. And poor Scorpio's like, Yeah, no, uh huh. I know this is going to work. It worked. I trust we everything. You know what? This is a summer episode. Yeah. This is our last <laughs> summer episode. Oh my God, it is. Yeah. So that's what my summer was is like realizing. Is this summer of realizing things? Mm -hmm. Is what I had. Um, I went through the same thing I go through every summer, which is I start out the summer really energetic, getting a lot of shit done. I'm just like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm moving, I'm shaking. And then mm -hmm. I get to August, the end of August, and I go, so there was like a bunch yeah. of things I had to do that never got done. And uh -huh, uh -huh, now uh -huh. I just feel like really crappy and I'm going back to work. But it's okay because fall's coming. Can't wait. Cannot wait. Yeah. You get reinvigorated. Like the crisp air comes out and you're like, oh, I'm a person again. Yeah. The crisp yeah. air and pumpkin spice. Yeah. You know? And I'm really more of like a, a fall apple girly myself, like okay. an apple cider bitch. Okay. But I like yeah. apple cider, but 
that pumpkin, here's going to be the weird part. So I'm not crazy about hot pumpkin spice. See, for me, pumpkin spice cold with the cold foam. Okay, very important question. Are you an iced coffee girly? In the nice weather, yeah. But in the winter, hell no. I feel like iced coffee tastes like coffee water. No. Okay, yes. Okay, I see what you're saying. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I just feel like it doesn't taste good. Okay, so what I like to do is that I like to get, I always ask for less ice. Okay. And so you get the coolness without the watered downness. Mm -hmm. But if you want to do And are you an iced coffee girly or like an iced latte girly? Oh, no, iced latte. Iced coffee in general to me is like, I need something in it. Mm-hmm. right i need some nice milk some oat milk in there i need some nice syrups in there like i need the whole thing when the weather is warm and i'm gonna say warm for me is even i'm wearing a sweater and maybe a jacket so when the weather gets cold when the weather gets to i have to wear a coat mm-hmm. do not give me ice to anything i don't want anything iced then i just want but then I'm going to have a cappuccino. I'm going to have a latte. Yes. You know, things yes, like yes, that. Yes. That's who I am. And f- for me, fall, since it's still warm, kind of, is iced uh-huh. pumpkin, pumpkin spice latte with pumpkin spice cold foam. That does sound lovely. This is a Dunkies? You're a Dunkies No, girl? I hate Dunkin' Donuts. It's a Starbies? It's a Starbies. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm just, we're getting the, I'm getting the lowdown for all the girly pops who want to know our coffee orders. Okay, listen, Starbucks, <laughs> if you live in the lower Hudson Valley, and- There's not a lot of them by us. What? Starbies. This is Starbucks, Starbucks right in my neighborhood, soon to be your neighborhood. You'll be able to pick it I up on your wait. way to work. Actually, yeah. <laughs> we, I, this, oh, when does this episode come out? No, okay, yeah. So I will not, it's not my neighborhood then, but it, it will be after this episode comes out. This comes out. Like the 31st. The 30th. Yeah. Well, soon to be your neighborhood has a Starbucks. Soon to be my neighborhood. But if you're in the lower Hudson Valley, if you come to Nyack, New York, where Modern Druid is, if you've ever thought about doing a trip to Modern Druid, there is a coffee shop across the street called Salonier. It's tiny, tiny, but it has the best coffee. I mean, seriously Mm -hmm. good coffee. I would have just coffee. I've had just iced coffee there. Just coffee from them? It's it's so good. Okay. Um, This woman is from Italy. Her family's from Italy. So she believes in making coffee, like not a bunch of special effects, like it's coffee. Mm-hmm. Now there are, I've learned a lot of things about different types of coffee from her, like granitas and all this stuff. Like, I don't know what that was. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, it's just, I, there's no need to go to Starbucks. Um, I'm surprised Starbucks is still in business with this woman there, because why would you want to go to Star? I don't want to go to Starbucks when I'm in Nyack at all. So I'm just going to say October is a great month to visit Nyack. Yes. Um, first of all, it's right across the bridge from Tarrytown and Sleepy Hollow, which obviously you should see in the fall. But, you know, like maybe things are happening. Maybe there are things in the pipeline in October um, where we might be in Nyack. I don't know. I don't know what we want to say. But I'm just saying, like, if you're free to go on a vacation, Maybe October, Nyack, New York, you want to be around. I'm going to say beginning of October and the last weekend of October, maybe. Those are good weekends. Maybe there will be, and not just that we're going to be there, because we tell people we're going to be at Moon Serpent and Bone, which we will. 
Yes. But we might be headlining a couple of things in Naya. We might be like doing things. That's yeah. specifically for which space. So if you're interested, obviously keep listening to us here, but keep your eye on Instagram because we're going to be posting there yes. the events yes, yes, yes. and when we are, when we're going to be out and about so you can come out and say mm-hmm. hi and, you know, ask, ask Gemini about Oedipus yourself. I, I literally become... I do not want to record this podcast, right? I say firmly to everybody who asks, I do not want to be like an on YouTube podcast. But every once in a while, we have an episode like this where I'm like, I just wish people could see how fucking insane I look. How absolutely insane I commit to this because I'm like so fully just like very animated. My hands are going. I'm like, I, it's it's Looney Tunes. And also when you see us... Um... I think we both have like very serious faces, but we're always happy to talk to everybody. Like, don't let yes, don't let our I'm faces just weird. <laughs> like that's I'm just weird because that's me. The last time we were Moon Serpent and Bone, and somebody came up to us, I know we both looked like, huh? You know, like New Yorkers. Like, are you like, kidding me? Like the fuck you who? want? You know us? And then really? they were like, "Are you?" We're like, "Yes." Then it's all hugs and everything. But so we're just New Yorkers. Yeah. We're just cranky New Yorkers, and <laughs> yeah, you know. So don't mind our faces. Definitely come and talk to us because we are friendly. Yes. But so keep an ear out because we're going to be and an eye out. Yeah, we'll be you know, posting we might, everywhere. We might be doing things. You know, we'll see. We're definitely doing. You'll things. find out. We're doing things. <laughs> we're excited too. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I am very excited. I. This was great. I feel like we've got so much good shit in the pipeline for everybody. This episode, the episodes after oh this, and September is going to be a big one. Yeah. October, we're doing things. Yeah. Um, you know, we're just, it's great. I'm excited. We're moving forward in a way that's like really authentic to us, but also I'm, you know, really good for our audience, really good for our community. So I'm just, it's nice. It's just nice. So, you know. We're just having a nice time. We are having a nice time. It's a good year. Year five is almost yeah. over. Shut the fuck up. Holy God. That's crazy. Damn. But we're not there yet. And of course, you know, keep reaching out to us. Let us know what you think about the episodes. Let us know what you want to hear more of. And of course, thank you so much to Kano and Moore for our amazing intro and outro music. And remember, if you're following the moons, you're following us. <laughs>